welcome to the third in our series of podcasts um, with me, Alex Johnson. And me, John Fotherby. And uh, in this podcast, we are following very uh, keenly on our, on our second podcast, which dealt with delay and extension of time. Uh, today, we're talking about liquidated damages and penalties. And um, of course, liquidated damages are are the flip side of what we were talking about in the um, in the earlier podcast. They are the consequences of what happens if the contractor is in delay that it caused culpable delay um, for failure to complete the work by the, the contractual completion date. Um, so before we get into all the legal uh, bits and pieces, John, what what do parties think about commercially when they are dealing with liquidated damages? Um, well, there is an urgent need to avoid them. <laughs> um, and, and, and let's not forget, they're, they're often capped at, say, 10% of the contract price. But if you've got a billion dollar project, 10% is quite a sizable amount of money. Yeah. Um, what I've observed in as a project manager and in dealing as a practitioner dealing with claims is there is a tendency in many owner organizations to put off the adjudication of extensions of time when they were due and if you recall from the last podcast we were saying that those need to be dealt with you know timeously as the event occurs um they leave it let's leave it till the end of the job and see what happens Um, it's a nice position for the owner because it's avoiding responsibility and it's, it's, it's quite wrong, but it, it's just way of life. Now, during the life of the contract, the owner may order ex, um, changes, variations, call it what you like, additions to the contract and agree the price even with the contractor. But this wait and see provides them with the opportunity to do a deal at the end of the job. We will not levy delay liquidated damages or delay penalties, but we'll set them off against the amount of the variations. So effectively, commercially, the owner does very well. He gets the variations for free and the contractor is happy not to have paid delay liquidated damages or penalties. Commercially, it is not satisfactory. So that's, I think, that's a tendency that I've seen repeated many times. And I've also seen, because the contractors do want to avoid paying liquidated damages, a willingness to succumb to that sort of strategy. Mm. What it means is, going back to podcast two, it's really necessary for the contractor to deal with the extensions of time and ensure that the employer or owner uh, actually complies with his obligations under the contract. And then we avoid that situation. Um, and the, the, the from also from a practical point of view, the wait and see approach denies the contractor the opportunity to replan the work due to the delays um, caused by, you know, as we say, the owner. And therefore, that is also a commercial impediment because if you can't plan efficiently, you plan inefficiently and it costs you more money. So I think it's a long winded answer to your question, Alex, but I think that that's what's happening. Yeah, no, thanks, John. I mean, there's uh, some really useful points in there. Um, 
and before we get into uh, liquidated damages, I should I should say that we're only talking about liquidated damages for delay to completion, which is distinct from performance liquidated damages that you see under um, plant contracts and EPC contracts sometimes, where uh, the contractor is obliged to pay damages for failure to meet certain performance targets. So we're we're not talking about those today. Um, we're talking about the the damages that are payable if the contractor fails to complete the work on time and those are usually expressed as an agreed rate per day or a rate per week uh, for the period in which the works remain incomplete and as you said john they're commonly capped to 10 percent of the contract price um there's a a question about who who did liquidated damages really benefit um which i'll come on to but just to make the point to begin with, what are they? Well, they're just an agreed pre uh, a pre-agreed amount of money that will be payable uh, by the contractor if it's late and and if it's without an extension of time. Um, so they're 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 free to part for, for parties to agree at the outset of a project, and there are various ways in which parties agree them, and I, I'll come on to those later. Um, but primarily, I think there is a school of thought that they benefit the employer more so than the contractor. Um, then they do benefit the employer because the, the employer can simply deduct the money or claim it if the contractor is late. And, um, and there's no need to prove the delay caused a loss um, because the nature of that loss, although everybody accepts there is a loss, is, is complex and it can be difficult. Um, and complex and difficult usually equal expensive um as well as time consuming so rather than have to uh make a claim for damages which, which we refer to as general damages which are the damages that result from a breach of contract um the employer simply can deduct the liquidated damages that both parties have agreed are to be the consequence um so that saves the employer money uh but they also benefit the contractor because th they're essentially a cap on the contractor's liability for breaching the obligation to complete the work by the by the contractual completion date, particularly if they're expressed as an exhaustive remedy. Uh, and that is sometimes uh, lost on people. Uh, and where they're capped to 10% of the contract sum, it's a very clear cap on the contractor's liability in that respect. Oh, okay, uh, so I've, I've got a question. Um, what happens if there's no liquidated damages stated in the contract right well if there's no liquidated damages stated in the contract then um the employer's remedy for the contractor's delay to the completion date is to make a claim for breach of contract so they will they will claim that the contractor uh, failed to complete the work by the contractually agreed date um and make a claim in damages and and damages are under english law compensatory intended to put the party uh, suffering the breach of contract in the position that they would have been had the breach of contract not occurred. Um, they're subject to tests of remoteness, so they're limited to those that uh, directly and naturally arise from the breach of contract. Um, they are not every single penny of loss that somebody suffered. That's That can be a misconception. Damages are are necessarily proportionate and contained by certain rules. Um, but as I said, that kind of claim, a claim for general damages for delay, is very difficult to establish. Um, 
for all the reasons that I mentioned, because it's complicated um, and it's expensive and the employer will have to go to a lot of effort to make that claim uh, for, for, for general damages, which is why, of course, most construction contracts contain liquidated damages, which are far more easy. You just simply deduct them. Yeah. Now, I've seen in a number of contracts, major contracts, um, where there's been several completion dates, so phase completion, where you have, uh, say, on an industrial plant, uh, a number of trains or units that need to be finished uh, at different dates because of the startup requirements, et cetera, et cetera. So the liquidated damages apply to each of the, let's call them milestones for sake of argument, yeah. apply to each of the milestones, often the same amounts. But it seems to me that the more milestones you have, the more you um, um, reduce the effectiveness of the LDs as a damage. Is that right? Yeah, def definitely. Because um, uh, as you say, you can have works that are phased or in, in sections. And it's very important to set those liquidated damages correctly. What you tend to see sometimes are um, fairly chunky liquidated damages for the early sections and then say the if the final section is something like um, commissioning and testing there'll be a nominal amount of liquidated damage mm. well actually commissioning and testing is just as important as everything else when it comes to having a completed plant and if you have nominal liquidated damages for that final section any delay to that final section has the consequence of costing billions of dollars a day depending on what the plant is doing but the liquidated damages are, are nothing. Uh, they are no no threat at all um, to the contractor. And, and that goes to the question of making sure that the liquidated damages are a genuine pre-estimate of the loss on the owner's part. Yeah. A lot of the time when we have this discussion with clients is they'll say, oh, well, I, I don't know what the loss is going to be. Oh, let's just put in this amount. And, and that strategy is really dangerous because the the risk of underestimating the liquidated damages is the employers so if if the you know if the loss of revenue or loss of profit loss of production whatever it happens to be whatever losses the employer might suffer if they woefully underestimated those losses then i'm afraid they're probably stuck with them as liquidated damages and to your example there's no threat at all the contractor just takes even if the contractor is late they, they'll just take the amount and finish when they want to finish yeah and we 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 come on to this in another podcast but there's a link here to recovery and acceleration where there's a delay and the the contractor may weigh the balance what is more commercially efficient mm. to pay the lds and just allow the job to to finish later uh, or to invest in recovery measures, which can be expensive, highly risky and uncertain, and still suffer uh, liquidated damages. So, yeah. a, uh, you know, we'll come back to that in, 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 in a subsequent podcast. But there is a commercial consideration in all of this. It's not just straightforward. So um, I'm just thinking, so what you're saying is that if the 
liquidated damages clause says language like this is the employer's sole remedy for the contractor's delay then the employer can't claim anything else as a separate claim on top of that even if it's cost him a lot more money it's regardless of what it actually costs him is that that's correct? right yeah, yeah that, that's right and and we see that from time to time where uh, generally that occurs when the liquidated damages aren't enough and the employer's underestimated them and the employer will say to us well how can i claim the losses uh, which are delay related so let, let's say for the sake of argument the delay related losses is a million pounds the liquidated damages are capped at ten thousand pounds that's quite a big problem uh, and there isn't uh, there isn't a very good answer to that because as, as you said john if you have that kind of language that says well the sole and exclusive remedy for delays the liquidated damages then both parties are have agreed that and both parties are bound by it as long as the liquidated damages clause is enforceable and so the employer is usually left with somewhat creative arguments about trying to say that those losses actually resulted from defect rectification it's the classic one um the courts are a bit wise to that. They, they've said, well, yes, I can see what you're doing, but actually there's two breaches. One is the defect and the other one is the delay and you can't have the delay cost resulting from the defect. So there is some creative argument that goes on. Um, but yes, yeah, so underestimating the liquidated damages is is the employer's risk. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that liquidated damages for both parties are not a very satisfactory solution in the context of having a good relationship for yeah. delivery of the project and incentives for the contractor to finish because he starts to look at the defense of the liquidated damages to protect his own interests as opposed to looking at the benefits on the project that could benefit both parties so yeah. I'm, i just wonder whether um, I know liquidated damages are very popular in many, many quarters, but I just wonder whether there's a true value for both parties for liquidated damages or whether a more incentivized arrangement that encourages performance and reduces argumentation would not be a better idea. And that's just a, a sort of question to throw out. I don't want us to discuss it necessarily, but something mm. to think about. Yeah, for sure. So it was... In many contracts that uh, we deal with are under um, uh, European Civil Code and they deal with penalties. So what's the difference between penalties and liquidated damages? So liquidated damages under English law um, can't be penalties. So there's some law on this. The, the leading case is um, Cavendish Square, which as it as it is taken to apply to construction contracts, essentially means that um, if the liquidated damages are extravagant, exorbitant and unconscionable, and that's a comparison between the, the, the probable loss and the damages themselves. So, for example, if, if the actual loss was £50, but the liquidated damages were a million pounds, that's, that's going to tick that test. And that, that will be a penalty. And if it's penalty, then the liquidated damages clause is not enforceable. So, um, liquidated damages remain a genuine pre-estimate of the loss. As I said, employers frequently, in my experience, underestimate that. Um, but the the issue of penalty is what happens when it goes the other way. If they are overestimated, then they risk being a penalty. Um, now, that is 
completely distinct from, as you say, John, penalty clauses, which you see in civil code um, contracts, which can be penalties. And um, uh, and often the, the clause will be penalty. And and the idea of those clauses is to penalise the party that is in delay as as punishment, whereas liquidated damages are are a pre-agreement of 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 the damages, i.e., um, damages that result from breach of contract, which are not punitive; they are compensatory. So the the essential distinction is that liquidated damages compensate, whereas penalties penalise. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, yes, the the two things shouldn't be shouldn't be mixed up really. Um, penalty clauses are exactly that, whereas liquidated damages cannot be penalties. Yeah, and many of the civil code um, or contracts under the civil code jurisdictions, whether that's France, or Germany, or wherever, it doesn't matter, or, or many in South America and so on. It's, it's, it's all, all the same principles, but the the laws themselves in each country vary a little bit in the way that the these things are interpreted, but the principles remain the same. Um, they use, say, a FIDIC contract, mm. which is based on English law principles. So are there some conflicts there between the principles of what we how the FIDIC contract has evolved basically from English contracts uh, and the principles of um, civil code jurisdictions as far as uh, delay penalties are concerned is, is, is there a conflict there yes uh, a potential there conflict is, yes and there is a general that sort of hints at the general conflict that the way in which construction law has been exported around the globe is very much based on an English approach. Um, FIDIC is no exception, but it's being used in civil code jurisdictions. Uh, I've particular experience, for example, of the Qatar civil code as applying to FIDIC contracts and the Egyptian civil code as applying to FIDIC contracts. And liquidated damages are one of those areas that those two concepts conflict with each other. Uh, and the reason is, civil code jurisdictions will often allow parties to challenge liquidated damages, for example, on the basis that they are um, not fair. And there's no concept of that under English law, because English law is everyone take everyone takes to have agreed what we've agreed because we wrote it down and we agreed it. Um, whereas actually, the, the civil code jurisdictions allow parties to undermine those. So liquidated damages um, undermine in a positive way, I should say. I didn't necessarily mean that to be critical. Um, but ch- liquidated damages can be challengeable. Caps on liability can be challengeable. So a lot of the things that English lawyers consider to be sacrosanct are actually open to challenge when it comes to civil jurisdictions that are based on uh, essentially principles of fairness. Yeah, I've got some uh, some experience of dealing with uh, contracts in countries like Qatar um, um, where we've had disputes claims and disputes um, coming up over time and penalties delays and the rest of the things we've been talking about and in those disputes all I've seen is that we've had to employ several firms of lawyers to deal with the law you mentioned Egypt, which influences the laws of Qatar. We had to have lawyers from Qatar. We had to have lawyers from France and so on and so forth. So it becomes enormously expensive. 
and that should in in my view should be an incentive for people to find solutions around these issues much as we were talking about in podcast two if we're talking yeah. about delay damages and penalties and so on mm. rather than allowing it to spiral into dispute because it becomes hideously expensive as you mentioned earlier in, in podcast one um, and uh, it just just becomes a uncertain and difficult and nobody can give any firm advice as to what outcomes are likely to be Mm. So I think the message must be deal with the issues, fix the new dates. It's not in anybody's interest to get into a fight over these issues when we have contracts that are inherently uh, conflicted across principles. And mm. I, 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 there's no way of really avoiding that, is there, that, that conflict, because we're working, you know, it's just a fact. We work with two legal concepts in one contract. Yeah, that that's yeah. right. And and often among your roster of expert witnesses, you'll have the local law expert. Yeah. Who who is there to advise on how the local law interprets let's say the FIDIC contract provisions, for example. Yes. yes. Um so you, you but equally the, the local law experts are not necessarily experts at FIDIC contracts. So you do have this situation where the English lawyers will advise upon the FIDIC contract as it's a as it's a contract we understand, but we can't advise on how that contract is applied in Saudi Arabia, for example. So that's where we need the the local lawyer to help with that part of it. But yeah, as, yeah. as you say, John, from the client's perspective, that does just mean it's more expensive. Yeah, and uh, a need to find solutions outside mm. of dispute. Okay, so for podcast uh, four, we're going to address how to make successful extensions of time claims. And that's going to build on the principles that we addressed in podcast two and the pitfalls and difficulties that we uh, considered under podcast three over the delayed liquidated damages and avoiding them. So thanks, John. That, that comes to the end of this podcast. Um, again, if it raises any questions, you can contact us on LinkedIn, Alex Johnson, John Fotherby. Um, give us your questions there and uh, we'll get back to you and we'll see you on the next podcast. Bye.